Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome back to another episode of Thoughts on Films. Uh, we took a bit of a hiatus, but now we're back with a new episode looking at something that's very interesting, certainly in my opinion, but not really has been covered as much uh, as I think it really should have been. My name is Fikri and I have uh, with me here today, Ajit Hassan Mutalib, who we previously had on the show to talk about the film Mandi Safar. Today, uh, Ajit Hassan and I will be discussing more of the Malayan film unit uh, so that we have a much better idea about what's what, what goes into the formation uh, of the MFU or the Malayan film unit, the kind of impact it had on Malayan society at that time, and perhaps one or two of, of the key films and, and the legacies of these productions in the context of uh, uh, the Malaysian nation-building uh, endeavor. So uh, before we get to the actual discussion itself, um, I will uh, just very briefly introduce uh, the Malayan Film Unit for those perhaps uh, not quite as aware of, of this particular entity. The Malayan Film Unit, ladies and gentlemen, was established in Kuala Lumpur in Malaya in 1946. Uh, it was a film organization connected to the British colonial government with the objective of creating a communal Malayan identity. Of course, one that is amenable to the, uh, the British interests as well. Um, in part also to combat illiteracy and also to promote public education on the path to self-governance. Later on, this will also be uh, quite significant in opposing the presence of communism in Malaya. So we're going to dive a lot more uh, into that particular area uh, later on in this discussion. Um, how do they do that? They would do this by creating a fair amount of audiovisual materials, uh, you know, training videos, uh, documentaries, even some fiction films to propagate a more modern idea of how things work or how things should work. Over time, this mission and vision would shift with the times connecting with events like the Malayan emergency as well as the coming independence uh, and the transition into Malaysia from Malaya, right? Uh, at that point, it would then morph into Film Negara Malaysia in 1963 before finally being subsumed uh, into the National Film Development Corporation, also known as FINAS, uh, in 2012. So today's uh, discussion with uh, Jason will be, as I mentioned earlier, a bit of an overview with um, some focus on, on some films here and then, some key events in the history of the Malayan Film Union. Uh, I must admit that as, as much as I've made a strong effort to know uh, a fair amount about this area, some of the uh, direct uh, materials uh, in, in the session will come from a paper written by Ajit Hassan uh, that was published as a chapter entitled Post-War Reconstruction and the Path to Nationhood in the Films of the Malayan Unit, published in the book um, End of Empire, Cultural Histories of Cinema, as edited by Lee Griveson and Colin McCabe. So first of all, Ajit Hassan, good evening. How are you doing, Ajit Hassan? Is everything okay with you? Good evening. So far, so good. Always good to know that. Right. So for the benefit of newer listeners, uh, this is a topic that we've covered before, but perhaps if you don't mind, um, it, would, can you introduce just very briefly, I think you, you have a history with Film Negara Malaysia, which was um, the, the entity that the MFU morphed into. Perhaps you can tell us a bit more about how you got started in this particular area, Jason. Yeah. Uh, in 1963, when I left uh, school, uh, the following year, 1964, I was invited by my friend to be his assistant at Robinson's department store uh, to help him do the store decorations and paintings. Mm. And it was within that four years that I uh, knew everything about my job. I learned everything on the job. And then there was an advertisement uh, for a graphic artist at uh, Film Negara Malaysia. Mm. So I applied, 10 people came for the interview, 
and uh, miracle of miracles, I was the only one chosen. Mm. <laughs> and 25 years later, when I met the guy who interviewed me, I asked him, and of course he told me why he had chosen me out of the 10, even though they were so much better and had higher qualifications. So mm. I came in as a graphic artist, but it was only in 1972 when I was offered to uh, write and direct short um, public service advertisements that I really got into film. So first the animation bug bit. And then of course, I always, whenever I'm confronted with something I've never done before, I will look for references and I would copy and I will modify. And that's how I learn things <clears throat> on the job. Mm. Now, uh, the, the one firm that I remember seeing in school made by the Blade Film Unit was mm -hmm. Hassan's Homecoming. Yes. This was in 1954 directed by Mohammed Zain Hussein, who became a director by default. He was a mm. cameraman. And mm. Yusuf Khan, the one of the earliest pioneers of the Malayan film unit, was the director. But he contracted malaria and died right. So uh, on, on the shoot. So Zain took over, and of course the rest is history. Uh, Mohammed Zain Hussein, I didn't know him in Penang. Mm. But I was uh, almost next door to his... Uh, uh, family mm. and his brother was uh, one of my best friends and it was only when I came to Malay, uh, Film Negara Malaysia that I met Mohamed Zain and uh, <laughs> just, uh, but I was not close to him at all we were just uh, boss and employee now yeah. uh, the first film I wanted to see was Hassan's Homecoming for mm. some reason it stuck in my mind and we will talk about the screenplay paradigm uh, later eh? Mm. Uh, of why it was so attractive and it won many, many awards uh, mm. in uh, many film festivals. <clears throat> so I saw it and then, of course, I wanted to see some of the other films because I was very interested in uh, uh, the scenes of, of those days. I began to see, whenever I was free, I would go to the film library and I would see one film after another. Mm. And of course, many of the earliest films are all gone. Because at that time they had no firm walls. Mm. So it was uh, you know, just kept just like that. And it was kept actually wrongly. Instead of being put flat, yeah. they put it sideways. Oh no. So you see, <laughs> so you see the, the chemicals would ooze out because of the pressure. Exactly. They didn't know all this. So yeah, it was yeah. very strange. Now, um, so when I saw all these films, then I began to understand. Mm. Uh, you know how they, they and the people who had made those films were still around. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, I was not yet into documenting, mm. so I never wrote anything down. So much of what I I have written down was was actually from memory. Mm. So uh, it was only later that I began to um, uh, interview them. Uh, and then, of course, I was enthralled by some films like Mandi mm. Safa. Uh, timeless Tamiya and so on mm. because of the way it had been directed and Mohamed Zain was the man behind all this. Mm. So he was one director who stood out from everyone else and he became the most famous uh, director as well as the head of the unit yes. uh, of Film Nara after that. Eh? Mm. So uh, after he retired I uh, somehow other managed to meet him and I started going around with him and became my mentor. And he had mm. a lot of practical things to share. It was mm. so unfortunate that 
his idea was finance. It was his idea in 1975. Mm. But somehow other it got hijacked and became something else. So anyway, that's another story. So <laughs> that's uh, how I got into firms and uh, interested in the history. That's brilliant. Well, we, we certainly are very grateful for that because I'm sure there's going to be plenty of uh, that memory bank that you are going to dive into to share a bit um, more of the knowledge that you have with us. Um, but I think uh, to begin with, I just want to very briefly touch uh, base with you with regards to a particular question that is perhaps a little bit before your time in that particular unit. The Malayan film unit uh, at the very least, right at the very beginning, was created with the intention of somewhat emancipating, in inverted commas, the Malayan community at the time uh, by way of emphasizing visuals and images and was seen by many people as being successful right from the very beginning. I just wonder whether you would know how much of this drew upon uh, some of the British effort in, in these other colonial countries like in India or Australia. You know, For instance, was it a matter of how they tried to counter maybe some of the uh, political opposition in these countries for, for all sorts of different reasons. And from that experience, they were able to apply a bit more of the lessons learned uh, in the Malayan film unit. Right. In the Commonwealth, there were other film units like in Australia, mm. New Zealand, even in Hong Kong. Mm. So, uh, uh, Ian Aitkins of uh, Baptist University has written a book about the Hong Kong uh, film unit, the very interesting read. And I presented two uh, papers twice. Uh, before he wrote the book. So, um, uh, someone said uh, that uh, colonialism is war, I think. Yeah, colonialism is war. And war, of course, uh, for war, propaganda is very necessary. Hmm. Uh, and, uh, and then when the emergency came, it was an undeclared war, and hmm. definitely propaganda was needed because there was no television. Mm. So, uh, what they did was, uh, they were more or less emulating the Crown Film Unit and the traditions, uh, the filmmaking traditions of John Grierson. You mm. know, John Grierson was actually supposed to come to Malaya to set up the film unit. But when I read the communiques back and forth uh, in the, uh, by the civil servants, they felt that John Grierson was a bit of a radical guy and they were not really in support of him. So they sent uh, Stanley Hawes, who was uh, from the Australian Film Unit, and he came in 1950 to see how uh, the Malayan Film Unit at that time was just a, just a unit under the information department, mm. but it had to be a full-fledged body by itself. Now, where did this idea for the Film Unit actually come from? So slide one, Mobin Shepherd. Mm. Uh, before uh, uh, he became Mubin, Muslim, uh, mm. he was a civil servant and uh, he had been uh, interned at Changi Prison in Singapore as a right. prisoner of war. Mm. So, uh, while, uh, I mean, of course, he had a lot of time. So, in the papers that he had written and which are preserved today, he had an idea that after the war, uh, he would like to establish a film unit. Mm. Why? I do not know because I haven't read the papers, mm. but he never lost touch of this after the war. So can right. we have the second one? Yep. Okay. Now, just before the war ended, mm. a huge military battalion uh, with warships and so on were anchored just off uh, Sri Lanka, at the time Ceylon. 
Yeah. And it was called Operation Zipper. And they were going to attack Malaya and drive the Japanese out. But at that time, and uh, and on this uh, one of the battleships, there was this uh, film crew that was going to cover the retreat of the Japanese. So as you can see in the uh, photo at the top, uh, yeah. in the center, wearing glasses, uh, wearing some kind of a gray jacket, is Ralph Elton, yes. one, a film director with the Crown Film Unit. Mm. Behind him, is uh, Dennis Densham, uh, who is the cameraman. And mm-hmm. there is a recording of him uh, talking about how, you know, when they came to Malaya and so on, is in the British Film Institute. So when mm-hmm. I went in uh, 2019, I had a chance uh, to listen to it. Now, uh, just behind the guy with the uh, cock head, the round head, yeah. is Yusuf Khan, the greening yeah. guy. That's Yusuf Khan. His uh, nephew was a driver for the uh, this unit, mm. and he was the assistant director, which means he was the uh, one who communicates between the crew and the locals. He ultimately became uh, a director with uh, the Malayan Film Unit when he yeah. was uh, founded. So Ralph Elton uh, came, but just before they were going to attack, the atomic bomb exploded in Hiroshima mm. and Nagasaki. Mm. And so they didn't have anything to shoot, uh, mm. any retreat of Japanese to shoot. But he was a true filmmaker. He did not want to go back empty-handed. He said, mm. let's make a documentary. And he got the approval and the money. Uh, it was called, I think, the Voice Voice of Malay, Voices of Malaya. Yeah. So they went around the country uh, to shoot uh, about the rebuilding. And Yusuf Khan uh, was the assistant director. Uh, his nephew... Osman Samsudin, who later became the uh, cameraman and then uh, retired as the director general of Film Negara. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, then they recruited two other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was in uh, Perak, in Kuala Kamsa, where the Sultan of Perak gave them a rest house to, uh, as their headquarters. Mm-hmm. And they recruited two people working on a bangsawan, Hassan Rashid and Ismail Kulo. Mm-hmm. So they became the grip, uh, the camera grips. So they went around the country and uh, shot a lot of things. Uh, the documentary they made, I think it's uh, on the British Film Institute website. Now, mm. uh, they had the Crown Film Unit uh, tradition of making films, which is they never interviewed anybody. They just <laughs> shot was, And then they had this voice of God. Yes, uh, yes. Everything that was going on. So uh, that doesn't make it as a true documentary. True. And even until today, or rather until uh, 2012, mm-hmm. uh, Film Negara was following the same format. They were not interested in listening to other people's views, mm-hmm. uh, especially if they are radical. So mm-hmm. that's how we were making film in those days. Now below is the grounds of the Malay Film Unit uh, mm-hmm. in Bangsa, uh, in Jalan Ma'rof, behind the Hindu temple. Okay. You know, yeah. Yeah. Pass, it's a Hindu temple. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, uh, blank field. That's where it was, and uh, these were combat cameramen uh, who had been with the uh, uh, what do you call it? the British Army, and then yeah. uh, some of them also were with the British Army, uh, British Army Film and Photographic Unit. Hmm. So uh, the one standing right in the center, slanting, is mm-hmm. Ralph Gowen who became the first head of the Malayan Film Unit. Right. And uh, the others are 
somewhere and uh, sitting on the ground on the right is Osman Samsudin. Okay. And uh, I, I can't and standing on the right is uh, Lee Miao Xiong, who was also one of the pioneers recruited as a uh, assistant cameraman. Later mm. became a very good cameraman. Okay. The first premises was that tall building, the Anglo, I think it's Anglo Oriental building, uh, at the junction of Yalantun Pera and uh, Malacca Street. Now it's totally yeah, yeah. obliterated. Uh, and it was on the second floor, and this was where the historic meeting took place. Mm. So Robin Shepherd was at his desk, and Ralph Elton, who was due to go back to England, walked past uh, his desk and said, it's such a pity, all that wonderful film equipment is going to be sold off to a Chinese company in Singapore. So of course, uh, Mubin Shepherd perked up. He said, what equipment? And then he found out that the Army and Photographic Film Unit had disposed all of their equipment mm. uh, and it was going to be sold, I think, to Shaw Brothers. Right. He didn't mention the name. <coughs> At the time, it was only Shaw Brothers. Uh, that was in uh, sometime in uh, 46 when Shaw Brothers wanted to start again. Mm. So after that, they moved to Jalan Ma'arof, the photo on the top right, Rain Film Unit Studios, and it was all atop sheds. And a couple, uh, only about 20, uh, 20 years later, you had this beautiful building in uh, Pataling Jaya. Now, you mm. ask the question, why not in Singapore? Why uh, in Penang? I mean, yeah. why in Singapore? Yeah, prior, so, prior to the start of the recording, ladies and gentlemen, just uh, to, to inform you guys, I did had the curiosity because historically speaking, Singapore is like the, the center for, for filmmaking in this part of the world. So it was a bit curious for me to see something like this set up in Kuala Lumpur instead of in Singapore. So that was the question I had for Encik Hassan earlier on. Yeah, because uh, Mubin Shepherd was already in Kuala Lumpur and he was the head of the information department. So by necessity, uh, they had to have it in Kuala Lumpur itself. But then they were thinking, uh, because they were going to have an in-house laboratory, they needed a lot of water. So first they considered Ipoh, then Penang, Johor. Finally, they decided to have it in Kuala Lumpur itself. <clears throat> so, um, next slide. A picture of a man on an elephant. Yes, very dramatic. Yes. So, uh, very, uh, very puzzled. <laughs> so, uh, before the war, there was this uh, anthropologist called Pat Noon. That's him on the elephant. Right. He had been employed by the Perak government uh, to do, uh, the British government, of course, uh, uh, to do research on the uh, Aborigines. Uh, mm. Why, I can't understand, uh, because the communists were not around yet. Yeah. But all the research that he had done came in very useful when uh, uh, Sir Gerald Templer came in 1952. They mm. wanted uh, to understand uh, what do you call about how the orang asli thought and behaved and so on because yeah. they were the frontliners and some of them were sympathetic to the communist cause. Yes. So of course they wanted uh, what do you call uh, to prevent this from happening, but they couldn't very well move them to new villages like uh, what uh, what they did to the Chinese. So they built jungle forts. Next slide. Yeah. So, uh, yes, two people, eh? Pat Noon and Mohammed Zain Hussein. <coughs> Zain Hussein, who was the wireless, I don't know, what do they call it, 
Uh, he was the expert with Morse code. And All right, he was okay. Very intelligent man. And he was uh, part of Force 136 that came from Sri Lanka and parachuted down into the jungles of Perak. So this is him uh, sending uh, Morse code. Now, somebody taught him Morse code. He ended up teaching that guy how to send the Morse code. <laughs> he was brilliant, brilliant. <laughs> and uh, uh, some famous people were together with him who later went into the military, became the head of uh, uh, the armed forces and so on. So, timeless Tamiya, uh, back to Patrick Noon. Eh? Now, uh, Pat Noon made an anthropological film called Nomads of the Jungle. And there was a book published called Nomads of the Jungle also, and it details what he had done uh, uh, during the time he was in the jungles of Perak. And he married the daughter of the hitman. And in the end, he was killed by a jealous uh, uh, suitor. <laughs> very interesting story. Very dramatic. Yeah, very dramatic. Uh, usually it can be made into a film. So, yeah. uh, uh, based on Nomads of the Jungle, which they had seen, they were, in 1957, mm -hmm. they decided to make a film called Timeless Tamiyan and uh, uh, shoot them as they were. But of course, in the true Grierson tradition, that mm. cinema is a creative treatment of actuality. Mm. Mohamed Zain was the cameraman, one of the cameramen as well as the director. He mm. came out with a film that astounded everyone. Mm. And uh, this also had won many, many awards. And when it was shown overseas, people could not believe that the Aborigines were not Aborigines, but actors. They, they thought they were actors. Hmm. Why? Because nobody was looking at the camera. They were just going about their everyday uh, life and uh, the camera was just recording them. But of yes. course, everything was set up. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah. and then, uh, I remember he told me, the best candid shot is a directed shot. That means you direct it in such a way that it looks candid. But I say, what if uh, the actor is not good? That means the director is not good. If you are a good director, you know how to do it. And he proved it in, with this particular film. Mm. Now, there's a very interesting story behind this. Uh, uh, this uh, the women were all topless. Mm. And uh, then told them, wanted them to cover uh, uh, their chest with uh, the sarong or have mm. beads over them. But the head of the unit, uh, Tom Hodge, said nothing doing. You shoot them as they are. And Zane said, no, if you show this overseas, people will think that uh, Malayans are all like this and they will be ogling rather than looking at the story. Hmm. And he refused to back down and he was prepared to resign. Hmm. And the staff all stood behind him. So, of course, the head had to back down. So, yeah. uh, he, he was one of a kind, Muhammad Zain. There are a lot of, a lot of stories about him. Next. <laughs> Okay, so this is a Force 136, the jungles of Pera, and that's Zin in the, mm. in the center. So all the experience he had in the jungle, and he was wanted by the Japanese, and uh, he had to give the order to kill, uh, to shoot two of his own men, because they disappeared and came back, and they had no valid excuse. And really? Him. Yes, and uh, uh, it had a psychological effect on him. He could mm. not sit in the dark alone. 
<laughs> okay. Well, that's that's not helpful if you're making such a film in, in the in that context. I would imagine. Yeah, but uh, I think you're working it, uh, Probably, <laughs> So anyway, uh, back to Mubin Shepherd. So what he did was, uh, he called a meeting in Kuala Kangsa at the rest house of uh, the people who had been working with Ralph Elton. This was after yes. he had left. Yep. So they brought them together. There were six of them. And he recruited all six uh, and uh, founded the Blaine Film Unit. And then he bought the entire equipment that was going to be sold for uh, for 50,000 straight dollars at that time. And it was all brought to Kuala Lumpur, put in this uh, uh, go-downs at uh, Bangsa. And uh, there was a lot of Japanese money there, paper money, all was burnt. And then they uh, put it there and then they recruited altogether 22 people. And then uh, they had the ex-British Army and photographic unit photographers and directors uh, to work with them uh, on contract. So the, some of them were seconded. The two of them who were seconded were Gilly Potter and uh, H.W. Gowen. Now, mm. H.W. Gowen uh, was a writer. Uh, Gilly Potter was a combat cameraman who yeah. had been working with uh, uh, Sir uh, Lord, uh, Lord Attenborough uh, during yes. the Burma campaign. So uh, this is Zen uh, with his Navy uniform. Uh, the guy on the right, I forget his name, he became the head of the armed forces. Mm. And uh, that's Zen as a director general of Film Negara in his room. Next. Right. And this is when Zen received the MBE uh, for his services. And uh, they were uh, uh, doing uh, Yam Seng in his house in Kampung Baru. Okay, that's Gilly Potter. And he was trained at Pinewood Studios together with all the other army cameramen. And mm. uh, the photo on the right uh, below is the Japanese surrender at the Victoria Institution, which he covered as a combat cameraman. So he was with Larkin Studios in London. And uh, who was his colleague? Roger Moore. <laughs> that's him. For those, of you, for those of you who do not uh, see the slides here, which are supposed to be all of you, ladies and gentlemen, there is actually a picture of Roger Moore on the slides. So that's nice. All right, next. And this is Sri Lanka, where uh, Potter was working on that very same animation camera, which was brought over to Singapore and then to Kuala Lumpur. So mm. he was doing uh, graphics and animated diagrams for Lord Attenborough, who is uh, on the right below there. Mm. And uh, it was for the film called Burma Victory, directed by Roy Bulting. And this is Gilly Potter. In 1957, he went back. to. He told me, he said, I cannot progress here in my career. I have to be around people who are better than I am. So when he went back, he started a Gilly Potter Productions and he became world famous for doing the impossible And uh, he would do matte paintings. He was involved in Superman, uh, The Highlander, uh, uh, Goodbye Columbus, and quite a lot of a lot of uh, films doing some small, small things which the director fouled up. And he mm. said to me, he said that if only the directors had discussed with me before the shoot, I could have saved them a lot of money and a lot of time. Mm. So that's me in London in his studio when I visited. And he yeah. was doing a commercial work. 
I thought that might be you. It does. It does look like a, a young Hassan Mutarib there. I must say. <laughs> so uh, he had just he had just finished uh, doing that visual effect in Superman where the three prisoners are floating in the mirror. Now oh, yes. nobody uh, nobody could figure out how he had done it. We knew it was some kind of a projection, but how did that projected image also turn in the same plane? As the as the material that he was projected upon. Mm. So what was his secret? Next slide. This uh, contraption. Uh, it is uh, a projector from an optical printer. Now people today they won't know what is an optical printer. It's a special effects machine uh, where you have a, a projector and a camera. They mm. are both face the lens are both facing each other. So the projector will project an image. Uh, the camera will pick it up, and then they can add on all the visual effects, like uh, like in Star Wars, the the spaceships and so on. So it's actually a very tedious process, and mm. you had to plan everything beforehand, just like the animation camera. So his secret was this uh, contraption, and an engineer's milling table, which is very heavy, and you can move it uh, to be shot frame by frame, and then rewind the film. And go back to the original position of the milling table, and then you can superimpose anything on it. So that was the secret, mm. and and he never revealed the secret to anybody. He did visual effects for commercials that had been uh, impossible to do. For example, next slide. So this is the platform he used for Superman. Now he was asked to do a plane taking off from the Champs Elysees. Mm. Now from here, it, of course, it looks artificial, isn't it? But yeah, yeah. the finished product, you cannot differentiate it from the from reality. Yeah. And they had gotten uh, Germany to do, France to do. Nobody could do it. So he had all these wires. And then when he came to uh, Malaya, uh, Malaysia, uh, he did the mass advertisement where the plane takes off, the undercarriage goes in, the lights are blinking, and it was all a model. So I was <laughs> there during. during the, when he came here, okay. So let's finish with uh, Gilly Potter. So he was the man. Next, uh, so that's him again, uh, yeah. discussing with uh, Govan outside the studio. Mm. So uh, Govan would write, and uh, uh, Potter would be the one who had been training, training all the young young people uh, on camera, under the animation camera, and so on. Mm. And that title, Malay Film Unit, was designed by him. The very beginning, I see. And he had right. this stirring music where oh, we would just break into uh, applause because it was so stirring. And that place they are shooting is in actually in Bangsa. So Bangsa was actually a rubber estate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Can you imagine? It's very, I, I can't imagine that now. I must say, I literally <laughs> cannot. <laughs> was was he just on the Malayan film unit logo for a bit? Um, he said that he created the logo for that. So he was the one who came up with the idea of using a tiger in the logo as well. Would I be right in saying yes. that? He was asked. He was asked to do uh, three drawings. So he mm. did one on the kanchil, the other one on the saladang, mm. and one on the tiger. So of course the British are identified with as tiger killers. So probably, okay. <laughs> but probably yeah, because of his power and so on, the feng shui mm. was good. That's why their films won so many awards. True. Now, uh, this one is the model that Stanley Horse 
uh, came with a blueprint and Gilly Potter made this model. This model was there when I came. I uh, don't know what happened to it. And this is what the final film Nagara looked like. But it was only about how many years later, 15 years later, that it was actually built. So that's Stanley Hall's in the middle. And okay. the second director, B.H. Uh, Hipkins, next to him. Mm. Next. So this is the opening. So let's finish with the slides. We can go back to it later. That was actually very informative and very enlightening because uh, I think you know, for the benefit of our listeners, there were a number of slides there that perhaps uh, they won't get to see. But certainly for my part, you know, it kind of really does help to visualize a lot of things that certainly, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have known or wouldn't have been able to see otherwise. Um, you, you kind of uh, just to very briefly touch on the issue of the uh, the, the credit. Uh, for the Malayan Film Unit, because I do have actually have a question about that. You mentioned earlier how um, a lot of these uh, screenings, which would actually be um, uh, be hosted by the Malayan Film Unit, and then you know people will break into applause when they see the MFU logo appear on screen. Um, is is that in some ways like a, a reflection uh, of the story being shown on screen, or is it just a matter of it doesn't matter what the film is, we're just so happy to be here less applaud. Uh, what, what was it like, really? Yes. So, in the very early days, uh, there were not many cinemas. Mm. Uh, so, of course, uh, uh, there was limited screening, but they were all exposed to film and people love films. Yeah. And it was just an extension of uh, Wayang Kulit, uh, Ma'iyong, Bangsawan, mm. and so on. So, when film first came in 1897, where the first film was screened in Slango Club, and then mm. in the Darling Street, three days later, everybody ran behind the screen uh, thinking that it was just like Wayang Kulit. So uh, <laughs> they didn't panic. Like I heard in Africa, when there was a close-up of a man shown, uh, people screamed and uh, and ran away because they thought mm. a man had been cut into two. Because <laughs> mm. <laughs> you know, only the, half the body was in it. But not in the Nusantara, because we were mm. all exposed to proto-cinema. Mm. Right? So, uh, I remember going to uh, one or two of the screenings and they will come uh, around with the mobile unit of the information department. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, after that, there will be uh, some kind of, I don't know whether there was a speech or not. I think there was. So, <clears throat> uh, because there was no television, this was the only way that the mass audience would get any information. Yeah. Now, what they showed on the screen was very cleverly done. Mm. It was only Malayans. Malayans seemed to be working together to rebuild the nation. So mm. the rebuilding was going on. So in a sense, it had a psychological effect on the uh, on the audience and they felt what, oh, everything is moving along. So mm. it was very cleverly done. And uh, sometimes they would use uh, uh, popular comedians uh, mm. like, uh, what's his name? Uh, Zainal Alam. Yeah, then Alam could speak Tamil, could speak uh, English, could speak Chinese, and could speak Malay. So mm. he was the perfect guy. And when uh, they made the voting song, uh, uh, I think it was composed by Saiful Bari, if I'm not mistaken. Mm. So uh, I have a slide uh, here where he comes out from behind a curtain. Now, why did mm. they do that? Because Bangsawan in those days, that's what mm. happens. The manager will appear on stage, uh, parting the curtain. Mm. Uh, I think it is uh, number, ah, yes. That's this it. slide here? Yeah. 
So that's Zainal Alam, hmm. uh, a very jovial man. He'll come out from behind the screen, emulating uh, bangsawan, hmm. uh, and then he'll go into the into the song. So it hmm. became a hugely popular song. Hmm. Next slide. So th- this will be the, from the film Malaya Votes. Am I right in saying that? Uh, no, no. This was a voting voting song. Oh, okay, just a song, right? A voting song. Yeah. So uh, this is Zain uh, shooting uh, anti-communist film. Batu hmm. Kish. Uh, you can see Batu Kish in the distance. Oh wow! Uh, I don't. I don't know exactly where this is. I got to find out. Uh, so uh, as usual, he will remove his shirt. <laughs> okay. Yes. Now, we'll come to Templer. Templer later. It's very interesting stories about him. Hmm. So your question is now about about the people. Now uh, I I remember because I was there during the colonial days of hmm. school. So even though we were not thinking about what what was happening around us. But we had a good feeling right. that you know everybody uh, was united. We were living in harmony. We used yeah. to go to uh, a Chinese friend's house, Indian friend's house. Absolutely no problem. And if a, a Chinese or Indian kid would wander into a, a Malay house, nobody will chase him away or look down upon him. Mm. So so much better during British days than what we are having now. Mm. Isn't that isn't that ironic? Suppose it depends, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so this is a, a picture. I'm looking at a picture of uh, the screen title for Jungle Fort and um, Templar, Gerald Templar. Okay, all right. Um, you, you mentioned earlier as well about the the mobile unit. So the the Malayan film unit we have a mobile film unit. I I just needed to confirm this uh, because. In the, in, at first, I was trying to kind of imagine what a mobile film unit looks like. And then I realized it's kind of Wayang Pacha. Would I be right in saying that it's actually Wayang Pacha? And it's just that I didn't know that yeah. it's Wayang Pacha. Yeah, definitely. Hmm. Okay. Uh, so uh, it will be a grand day for the young kids because hmm. once the, uh, the, the, the jeep will go around the kampong announcing that tonight at so-and-so, will be screening films. Mm. Kids will be running after the jeep and when it was being, the screen was being set up, oh, you can see a whole throng of kids there. And of course, uh, there'll be, uh, uh, what do you call this? Uh, a lot of mosquitoes and so on. So some <laughs> people will be bringing the mosquito cords <laughs> or covering themselves with the sarong uh, and sitting. And uh, you'll have... Everybody, Chinese, Malays, Indian, young people, old people. Why? Mm. Because it was a novelty. Something new and something different uh, at a time. Mm. Um, I think in a previous uh, event where you and I had the pleasure of attending, somebody also suggested, uh, I think it was Nadine Chan who said that such events are also like, it's like something that is like a romantic, potentially a romantic event for people who, yeah, it's not just for kids to watch films or for families to get together, but it's also for certain groups of people who are interested in in the fairer sex, perhaps, who if oh, they yes. want to go on a date, uh, that's a context yeah. in which they can go on a date. So I, I, I thought that was quite interesting as well. Um, yeah, those days, you didn't have the chance, like today, you can simply take a girl out. You have to be very surreptitious about it. So that would be the opportunity. 
Yeah, or you can do it online nowadays. I would say, um, you know, <laughs> a lot of people just meet on in in video games online today. Jason, um, you you will be surprised. Um, coming back to a bit more of my question here, um, so I just kind of want to take a few steps back before I move forward because um, we've talked about quite a number of things that I think are very interesting. But I, I want to get back to the British influence here because in your paper or in your chapter in, in the End of Empire book, you also wrote about how the British, they were there and they were very much uh, in, in, in the mix when it comes to setting up the Malayan film unit. But you also noted that in terms of their presence on screen, they tried to keep themselves to the background as much as possible. Why do you think this is the case, Jason? Well, they, they definitely did not want the British presence because mm. they were being looked upon as outsiders. Mm. And of course, their culture was different. Everything was different about them, uh, mm. their skin color and so on. <clears throat> Uh, aside from that, I think uh, they wanted to have only Malayans because they wanted to show Malayans to Malayans so mm. that they can get uh, better reaction from them and uh, uh, better cooperation. So mm. it was uh, carefully planned. And I remember one film called uh, Rohani Steps Out. Yep. Uh, 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 as a side story, uh, the girl acting as Rohani uh uh, was single mm. and she fell in love with the director, Mohamed Zain Hussein. Uh, yes. So this is the one who wanted to, who forced uh, Tuan yes. Zain to actually get married Maybe, to uh, her, right? Otherwise she wouldn't want to finish a film. Is this the one? <laughs> That's what uh, cinema is all about, isn't it? <laughs> so in that film, uh, they were uh, trying to teach uh, uh, women at home Young, mm. young women at home about how to be you know, self-sufficient, don't waste uh, time, mm. be doing some things that are fruitful, fruitful and also mm. for uh, young married uh, women uh, to be doing things uh, at home because they didn't have much money. So there mm. are a lot of things that we've done uh, using local materials and so on. Yeah. At the end of the film only, you will see the wife of Daryl Templer appearing. Yes. And uh, she just comes in like she's a visitor. Like she's not involved at all. Now, in the graphics at the end, it says that it was her idea for that, uh, you know, that, what do you call it? Is it home, home craft, something like that? Uh, and so on. Actually, it was that on Jafar's idea, it got hijacked. All right. But okay. nobody knows this. Okay, well, that's most unfortunate. Something I else. Read this that... in a book. Uh, performer who wrote about this. Wow, that's very interesting to note. Um, I, I think, um, you know, when you mentioned Rohani Steps Out, I think the film is also, at times, it, it feels a little cruel to Rohani. Certainly in the beginning, um, I, I remember a scene that says, right at the very start, uh, Rohani masak, tapi dia tak pandai masak. <laughs> so, so the idea here is that Rohani has to kind of get involved with the community as a way of learning of cook, you know, how to cook, how to jahit baju and whatnot, as, as you know, to be re-socialized into the, into, into the, the community and, and how, you know, and, and become a good wife, so to speak. And on that note, I, I, you know, my, my, as much as I'm interested in this area, my actual personal research interests are actually more related to gender. And for me, I, I'm always interested to note how some of these films also has an emphasis on that. So you mentioned, for instance, Rohani Steps Out, and then there's a bit of this in Letters From Home, 
um, which kind of teaches uh, um, uh, uh, an elderly character how to vote or something like that, um, and in you know, the processes of, of the local elections and such. Um, I just wonder how successful were they in actually instructing women uh, in real life? You know, is it is it a case of women seeing these films and then thinking, ah, betul tu, kita nak kena buat macam tu. You know, is is it is there a direct uh, cause and effect relationship like that? Well, I do not know. No, no research has been done in many areas related to the brain film films. So mm. I'm not able to say, but mm. I would think that because it's something that's coming from people who are, you know, higher up on the on the status and so on, people will react to it. And uh, of course, it will be a talking point among others. But that thing that you mentioned about uh, Rohani, uh, mm. eh? mm. I think it was more aimed at the women out there, yang masa, rather than Rohani. Oh, is it? Oh, okay. I, I misread that. Thank goodness you're here, Jason, <laughs> to enlighten and put me back on the right path. Um, speaking of which, I think maybe in that sense, we can kind of uh, touch base with this one question that I also have. Um, because uh, in your paper, you also mentioned that uh, MFU films from uh, 1947 onwards often prioritize one-way communication. We discussed this earlier through the narrator's voiceover. You talked about the, the voice of God, you know, often kind of giving you a very dictatorial view on things. Um, uh, you, you use uh, one film, Acting on Information, uh, which is a training film preparing against a communist strike as an example. So usually the process is they show something going wrong and then they kind of bring in the solutions to say that, okay, so this is how you solve this problem. Um, I just wonder though, I mean, wouldn't this have been, I mean, the standard in a way for propaganda films to kind of just, you know, uh, always have to be constructed as a one-way cog in the bigger picture propaganda machine? It's always just to force to think one way, right? Yeah, because they were dealing with people who were uh, mostly illiterate at that time. There were many people oh, who were okay. right. And even in the 80s, when I went to Trangano, mm. uh, I was uh, shooting a documentary on world building and I, mm. I wanted to pay someone. I asked them to sign uh, the receipt. Mm. Uh, but, so he was embarrassed. Then I found out that he didn't know how to write. <laughs> mm. He didn't know how to read or write. So even up to you know, 30 years later, the situation was like that. So I think it was because uh, they were they assumed they were dealing with people who do not know much about the modern world. Mm. And therefore, they had to structure uh, everything in such a way. And I think this is where the voice of God that comes in was to tell, uh, was to reinforce what was being shown on the screen, mm. uh, rather than you know just trying to force something down uh, people's throats. But I think they were so good <clears throat> in understanding how to structure their visuals, and of course doing the editing, where everything is made clear. Mm. So that's what propaganda does to you. Uh, nothing should be ambiguous. So mm. I, I think this is why probably I myself remember. Many many of the films that I've seen, eh? because mm. uh, it was easy, to, easy to digest. We didn't have to think too much. That's mm. what Hollywood movies are also about, isn't it? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, true, and that's why they are successful, uh, and and that's also why I suppose the Malayan film unit was successful. The question I have for you, Jiasan, is how successful, and, and to that I kind of just want to bring this discussion slightly more towards the the anti-communist effort 
um, from from the MFU side of things, because um, a lot of these films were also seen as uh, as efforts to counter the communist influence, uh, and a lot of that was actually tied uh, largely to the Chinese community, for better or for worse. And this was done by the colonial administration at the time, who believed the Chinese to be um, quote unquote here highly susceptible to visual propaganda. So I think a part of that could be because of what you mentioned earlier about some of the illiteracy rates, perhaps. Um, but, uh, you know, there, there were a number of films, uh, you know, rightly or wrongly, like A New Life or Our New Home in 1951 and 1952, respectively, which tried to kind of show how positive portrayals of Chinese life could be in, in the new villages built by the uh, Harold Briggs. So I, I just wonder, like, in this case, um, you mentioned earlier about this being successful. Was it uh, successful? And if so, how so? Was it really... Um, successful at truly countering the, the communist influence um, for their purposes? I can only give my opinion because uh, I mm. don't think it's been written anywhere. Oh yeah, sure. Uh, I, I'm, I'm here for your opinion, Shazad. Absolutely. Uh, I think they were very successful because uh, we never heard any uh, anybody complaining about the film. Mm. They just accepted what they saw. And mm. because they had been structured in such a nice way, like for instance, like Hassan's Homecoming, it uses mm. the uh, screenplay paradigm of the hero's journey perfectly mm. through the narrative as well as the visuals, which I have uh, the slides to show you afterwards. Mm. So uh, uh, they did it instinctively, the locals, I mean, but the mm. British, they were all trained, they knew what they were doing, and all those films that the Crown Film Unit did in uh, uh, London uh, during the war, for the, mm. for the war effort. Also, uh, I read. Uh, uh, what do you call it? papers that say they were very successful to counter the Nazi influence and they also copied much of the Nazi propaganda for mm. their own film for the, in, in London. So I think all this knowledge and experience they brought uh, down here but mm. I must say that the people who were working at the film unit, they were ordinary men. Mm. They were not people who <clears throat> were thinking we are here to do propaganda. That yeah. comes from outside, uh, from the, uh, what do you call, uh, London and so on. But mm. these were people who were genuinely interested in the people, in the locals. So I must, uh, and I knew a couple of them. So I, I must say that they did a lot of things for us, including Mobin Shepherd, who has uh, recorded our culture and our tradition in so many books. And uh, uh, what do you call, uh, re, uh, I think our National Museum also, he was involved. He was involved mm. in so many things. Mm. So in a sense, we should be thankful to the colonials, even though he was a civil servant, but mm. his heart was in the country. Mm. Okay. Uh, there, there is absolutely a part of that um, historicization, which I will get to in the second part of our discussion. Um, and a, a little bit about the German influence as well. Uh, sorry, Jason, you wanted to say something? You mentioned the new village, huh? Now, they forcefully yeah. moved the Chinese into the new villages and mm. the conditions were deplorable. But what was the title of the film? Our New Home. Mm. Uh, improvising it. Yeah, true. Uh, feel good. So, uh, people who didn't know anything at all about it, wow, look, look at the government, uh, what they are doing for our people. And mm. they showed that soldiers helping the people to climb up onto the lorries and so on. And mm. there was nothing like them like lining up 
marching and so mm. on. So it was just like they were moving to a new home. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, certainly on on one level, I mean, again, in the context of the bigger picture, Cold War uh, slash anti-communist uh, efforts um, of of the United Kingdom and the US at the time, I mean, certainly this is something that it's important for us to see on screen as well. You're right in in talking about how this is historicized in a certain way. Um, but just uh, one final question before we close out the, the first part of our discussion here. Can we also argue perhaps that the success of the MFU is um, one of the root causes, if not um, the main cause itself, or the sort of communalism or, or division that sometimes we see in Malaysia today? Um, because I... I do look at uh, this one paper written by He Wai Siam, um, entitled uh, Anti-Communist Moving Images and Cold War Ideology on the Malayan Film Unit. Um, there's a quote here somewhere near the end, which I thought is uh, quite interesting. The greatest criticism of the MFU films is that they implemented the British colonial government's long-term racist divide, quote-unquote, divide and rule policy. These films caused a change in the identity of the Malayan Chinese people, whether coercive or unconscious, and, plant, and planted seeds of racism in the politics of Malaysia, which remain there to this day. I I wonder what your take is on this particular um, perspective, Ajahsan. I'm, I'm ambivalent on this issue. Mm. I would say yes and no. Uh, mm. Yes, uh, uh, let me take the no first. Mm. If you saw Malayans on screen during those days, you would right. think that we are a family. We are all living together next to each other. Mm. And uh, this is how we have been for uh, a long time, even mm. though there were one or two skirmishes here and there. Mm. But I would agree because the films were made in, in uh, four languages, really four, English, mm. Malay, Tamil, and Chinese, yes. Mm. So it was aimed at four separate communities. Mm. But that can't be helped because... There were a lot of Chinese and Indians who also could not speak Malay very well or understand mm. Malay very well. So they had mm. to do that. And uh, 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 some of the films actually showed that distinction that the Ch- Malays were born into agriculture, the Chinese were more in, in the towns and so on. Like mm. Hassan's homecoming, you can see very clearly that the Malays were paddy planters and mm. the Chinese were the middlemen uh, who were buying it. And then mm. uh, in Abu Nawaz, the first feature film made in 1957, mm. uh, also showed the Chinese in Malacca town and mm. uh, they were involved in uh, business and a lot of other things while the Malays were in the in the kampung. And even uh, Mandi Safar, uh, this is a strange thing. I cannot understand why uh, Mohammed Zain overlooked this. Mm. So when we first saw it, we thought, wow, what a wonderful film. He's an artist with the camera. Mm. But today, when we are looking at it critically, we find that he too was continuing the same thing that the British were doing. So in Mandi Sapa, made in 1960, the Malays start out from the village and they go to Tanyong Kling. Right? At the end, they go back to their villages and then we see the landscape very clearly, a paddy planting Mm. uh, milieu for the Malays. Mm. So again, compartmentalizing them, yeah. identifying them with the name. So that was very strange for me. Mm. It reaffirms the hegemony at the time. It just again, the colonial mindset. For those of you who may not know, I think it was uh, Frank Sweetenham, I believe, at that time, who had the idea that 
the Malays were better at farming, so let them do that. The Chinese were better at, you know, some of the more economic side of things, so let them do that. So there's that legacy, which, um, you know, one way or another, you see through some of these films and also uh, into our deep-seated unconscious, perhaps, uh, even until today. Um, yes, I mean, um, we'll pick up some of this discussion again in a very short time uh, because we've reached the end of part one. In part two, uh, we'll dive deeper into some of the more specific films, um, looking at uh, one or two of them in greater detail. So, uh, yes, we'll catch you back here in a bit. Everything is okay, I just want to play, unplug for the day and live in the moment. Because I'm living.